Welcome to the UC Berkeley Data Science Education Podcast. We're happy you're listening in today. In this space, you'll hear from a variety of distinguished data science educators and professionals. The individuals we'll speak with are diverse in experience and perspective, but share the common goal of shaping the future of data science education. Our idea is to have some informal conversations with the goal of creating community and let people hear from practitioners in this growing new field. And my name is Lauren Chu, also from Data Science Undergraduate Studies. I'm working as an intern with the division's external pedagogy team, and I'll be helping to guide the conversation today too. While our primary focus with this podcast is amplifying the voices shaping data science education, we're also well aware of the crucial role that public data science educators play in bridging the gap between academia and the broader community. In today's episode, we're excited to expand our horizons and welcome a distinguished guest whose work not only resonates within educational institutions, but also reaches the wider public, making data science accessible to all. Uh, Today, we have a great honor of having Tim Harford here. Uh, Can you tell us about your journey into this field of data science and what inspired you to write The Data Detective? Sure, I'd be glad to. So, yeah, my name is Tim Harford. I'm uh, I'm trained as an economist. Uh, I've written uh, 10 books. I present uh, a podcast called Cautionary Tales. I present a radio program called More or Less on the BBC. And I suppose it's the BBC program that really led me towards data science because, you know, being an economist, you know, I'm a professional nerd for sure. I'm I'm comfortable with numbers. But the BBC show is really trying to examine how numbers are used in everyday life, uh, how numbers are used by politicians, for example, or corporations or charities trying to make the case for something or advocate for something. And I've been presenting that show for now Oh, gosh, uh, 17 years. So uh, a lot of different experience seeing the way numbers were used and misused. But I've always come at it not from a the perspective of a trained statistician, but from the perspective of a journalist who's, you know, who's numerate and is trying to help people think clearly. And that's really where the data detective came from. For a long while, I didn't want to write a book about statistics. There are lots of great books about statistics and thinking clearly uh, using statistics. Um, but I, but I felt that the the two things that I could add based on my BBC experience was one was a, a kind of psychological realism, a recognition that a lot of what we think is is not really about, oh, you got confused between correlation and causation or something like that. It's the the problem is you believed something because you wanted to believe it. The second thing that I wanted to introduce was just the idea that statistics can be a really positive thing. Your data can be a positive thing. We, we, I think, have got ourselves into this weird situation, even among people who are who are advocates for data science, it's very easy to fall into the trap of only talking about things going wrong, only talking about misinformation. And then you kind of, you're just into the, the lies, damn lies and statistics trope. And I wanted to push back against that. Nice. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I think you're just somebody who's worked so, so powerfully on the role of uh, making society in general data literate and, uh, you know, sort of motivated by why is it why is it important for the general public to understand these things? Um, and if possible, could you comment on how maybe this would be integrated into the university experience, just general sense of data literacy for society at large? I think it's really helpful to tie 
ideas about data, statistics, numbers to real world problems. So rather than saying, hey, we're going to have uh, we're going to have a stats course to say, well, is there a way that we can incorporate statistical thinking or numerate thinking into your geography course, your economics course, your physics course, your uh, your English literature course or philosophy course? It's more natural in some cases than in others. Um, but but to in show that that kind of thinking can be used in all sorts of different contexts and can be used to illuminate questions that, that you know people care about rather than as a standalone technical subject i think that's the that's the most important thing because very often what we're talking about the the skills that we're talking about are not actually that hard i mean certainly not at the level that i'm operating at i mean the level that you are operating at maybe is different but the level i'm operating at the questions that we're asking and we're trying to answer are often really quite simple, and yet they're questions that get neglected. In the data detective, you do delve into uh, in statistics, highlighting the potential for numbers to be manipulated or misinterpreted. And we are in this era where there is a lot of skepticism towards data. Um, how do you recommend that educators or, or other people working in this field help to build trust in statistics? Well, I think that the first thing to do is that the statistics themselves have to be trustworthy. We can't actually control whether somebody trusts us. What we can do is we can behave in a way that that maybe deserves trust. And then we have to leave it up to the other person whether they're going to uh, recognize that with their trust or not. And later in the book, I talk about some, you know, some principles of um, of trustworthiness. So that that, I think, is the most important thing. But I think it's also useful to um, to show statistics or data actually answering real world problems. So um, just to give you a very a very recent example, uh, the claim was made uh, that because of attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, ships are routing away from the Suez Canal and around South Africa, and it costs a million dollars in extra fuel when they do that. And so a listener wrote to us and said, a million dollars? It can't be right. So we called up an expert and rather than going, hey, there's this crazy fake claim and it costs a million dollars in fuel. Yeah, it's fake. It's all fake. Lies. We're like, well, is, first of all, is that true? And he said, yeah, we think that's true. And then we said, well, is it a big number? And he said, well, yeah, sure. It's a big number. A million dollars is obviously a big number, but the fuel costs are normally about $3 million. So it's going up from 3 million to 4 million. So, you know, yeah, it's kind of not, it's not nothing, but it's not kind of a crazy amount. And then he said, do you want to know how much the value of the cargo on one of those container ships is? And we're like, yeah, that would be really interesting. And he said, well, it's about a billion dollars. And you think about the tens of, I mean, yeah, it's amazing. But you think about the tens of thousands of uh, dollars in each shipping container, like, you know, if you imagine a container that's filled with racing bikes or a container that's filled with Xboxes or like it, the value is quite high. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of containers on a, on a ship. A uh, billion dollars of cargo is not that surprising. And just to remind people, a billion is a thousand million. So if you've got a billion dollars worth on your ship and the cost of the shipping goes up from the cost of the fuel goes up from three million to four million, you know, it's annoying but the real cost is actually the delay, that the fact that the chip is tied up for longer. So that just giving you a sense there of 
we had a number, people thought that can't be right. And then we said, actually, it is right. Let's give you some context. Let's show you why it's right. Let's help you kind of figure out like whether a million dollars is a big number compared to a billion dollars. And let's also help you understand why a billion dollars, although it seems like it's insane, actually, no, that could be like, that makes perfect sense when you really think about how big those ships are. And you'll notice none of this is, I didn't use matrix algebra. I didn't use kind of t-tests. There's nothing super complex here. Anybody could do this if they had the confidence to kind of slow down and think it through. And that's what we're trying to help people do. Fantastic. And nice segue to my next question. Uh, you're an economist. A lot of you, like your Financial Times columns on economics. Um, and I've been teaching or starting to teach uh, in the last few years at this intersection between this new thing that's data science and economics and, and meeting the students in between. Um, so I was just wanted to ask you, like, are there places that you see as connections or intersections between a world of data science and a world of economics? Yeah, I think it's a very exciting field. It's not a field I'm an expert in because you know, I I left academia as an economist in 1998 and a lot of the really exciting stuff has happened since then. But um, so one thing that's been uh, been being done is new sources of data. So rather than rely on something like GDP data, which is you know, it's a pretty small data set. You maybe have quarterly GDP estimates going back you know, 100 years. That's, you know, you've got 400 data points. It's not that much data, really. Instead, you're saying, hey, well, we've got data, live data from uh, satellites, for example. Or we've got this incre these incredible feeds of data from uh, credit card companies. And, and so just the, the richness of the data, but also the messiness of the data. It's not as well behaved. It's not as well structured. Um, what can we do with that? And, and economists, I think, are doing exciting things because economists are they're not data scientists, but they they like the idea of data. They're not afraid of data. They want to they want to get into it. So there's some there's some great stuff going on there and oh, amazing things being done with administrative data like tax records, real insights of way, way beyond things like, hey, who pays taxes and because tax is connected to income, you're tracking, for example, opportunity through a person's life and you're saying what determines whether somebody uh you know becomes a you know a high earner or not you know the neighborhood they grew up in their parenting their the quality of their kindergarten teacher there are amazing linkages that are now being made and, and economists are uh, are right in there nice thanks um so again a sort of um a bridge to the education world uh, you've been a leader in sort of like, you know, teaching through data stories and these real world applications that that are really accessible to people. One thing that can be really challenging sometimes is how to uh, the educators really link the story behind the data. Um, and how do we make sure that educators uh, can teach the students to understand these practical implications of a story that they're teaching? Yeah, I mean, it helps to know what a story is. And st storytelling is the way we humans communicate with each other. And, you know, you know a good story when you hear it, but you don't necessarily know why it's a good story unless you've had a little bit more experience uh, breaking it down. So so really, when I'm telling stories myself as a journalist, I'm I'm looking for a protagonist, some, somebody the audience can kind of identify with. I'm following this character through this story. I'm, I've, I've got their viewpoint and my viewpoint is their view, viewpoint as I go through the story. You want a twist, a bit of a surprise. Uh, there, are, there are narrative ups and downs. 
Um, and you want to explain enough, but not do too much explaining that it slows the story down. You've got to explain enough to um, to follow the story as it as it unfolds. And it's great if you can convey. There's this cliche: show don't tell. But th this idea of conveying information through the story rather than stepping back and going, I should probably at this point uh, give you like five paragraphs of kind of of, of lore or kind of explanation. So th th all those things make a great story. Now you can't always tell a great story in the classroom, but it, it's it's good to have those in, in mind. So that human interest, the idea of what is the viewpoint of the of the listener, and giving enough information that people can follow without drowning them in, in, in information. And that, I mean, that last thing is, is so, so hard because as an educator, you know what you're talking about. Hopefully you know what you're talking about. That's why you're the educator. And it's really hard to rewind and remember what life was like when you didn't know that stuff. But that, that's the challenge that we, that we face in the classroom. Yeah. So speaking of the classroom, um, so what initially drew our attention to you was your book, The Data Detective, um, which one of our team members read. So have you noticed the data detective being utilized in the context of modern data science or like data literacy courses, um, especially within the college classroom? So I hear a lot of people telling me that they, that they like the book and that they're engaging with the book, which is exciting to hear. I think the the book is not aimed at professionals and it's not aimed at at uh graduate level students the book is aimed at ordinary people and indeed i've even written a children's book called the the truth detective which is basically the same book aimed at 10 year olds so what i would imagine is that people are going to be using it uh for uh for minors or they're going to be using it as an introduction because it doesn't have those technical ideas instead it's motivating some really really basic um concepts some some traps and some opportunities and some reasons why you might want to get serious if you want to understand the world why you might want to understand data so that i would i would be expecting it to be used at that introductory level definitely and then for the educators out there who are listening in do you have any like favorite go-to stories or maybe vignettes that you think would be good for the classroom one that i begin the book with that still makes me think every time is start by asking where do babies come from and then making the statistical case because that always gets people oh okay where are we going here then the making the statistical case that babies are delivered by storks and you can you can make that case and you can show how the statistics work and you can show there's this strong correlation between storks and babies and that's a great kind of fun engaging way to get into the idea of how even if something meets the standard statistical tests that you would expect doesn't actually mean that babies come from storks so that's a that's a fun idea right from the start but then you can take a step further back and go deeper and go well where did the storks and babies idea come from it came from daryl huff the author of how to lie with statistics and then you can talk about that slight slightly darker side of well it's good to be skeptical of statistics but you can be too skeptical you can actually get cynical about statistics and that's what Daryl Huff's book ended up doing. And then the final, the final kind of twist in that story is Daryl Huff talking about storks and babies in front of a congressional committee, trying to convince Congress that they didn't need to worry about cigarettes. And there was no need to put health warnings on packets of cigarettes. So you go all, you travel the whole emotional journey from like, oh, like, I, I wonder what, how you would statistically prove that storks deliver babies. You see the proof, you're like, oh, aha, that's kind of funny. 
and then there's the there's the history of statistics and and there's a there's a, a cautionary tale there as well so it's it's all there Definitely. Um, and then this is more of like a fun question just for you. So we know that you're interested in a lot of different fields like economics, data science, personal development in that sphere. Um, so if you were to teach a class on anything, what would it be about? I would teach, teach a class on anything, you know, just to so maybe this is a surprise, but I think I might teach a class on on rhetoric or public speaking, like how to give a really good talk. Uh, that's something uh I always wanted to write a book about. I never wrote a book about it. I think the the definitive book has probably already been written and I don't think I have anything more to add. But I think the art and the craft of public speaking is is really important and, and underrated. So I'd do that because that's the, something I just don't get to do in any of my other uh, gigs. Definitely. That makes sense, given that you're a journalist. So it kind of goes hand in hand. Um, and then this is the last question. And it's a question that we ask all of our interviewees. Um, but do you have any parting thoughts or words of wisdom for data science educators from around the world who are listening in? So the three things that I tell ordinary consumers of data, if I'm trying to boil it down to the most simple, um, most simple piece of advice is, is the three C's which is calm, curiosity, and context. So calm is simply to remind people they often will have an emotional reaction to claims that are made, um, you know, often on social media or in the newspapers, uh, TV news. You have this emotional reaction. You need to observe it before you can get past it and think clearly. So be calm. Context is incredibly important. There's so many ways in which numbers themselves can be accurate but completely misleading if you don't understand like what's the time series? Like, is it is it big or is it small? Uh, is it going up or is it going down? Can we compare this number in this country to this number in this other country? What's the definition they use? Is it is it the, like the definition it sounds like they should be using, or is that some really weird definition? Oh, and by the way, who made this statistic anyway? Where did it come from? Should I be aware that there's a conflict of interest? All of these go under the subject of context. And the final thing, the final C, is curiosity. Just encouraging people not to use statistics as a way to win an argument, but using statistics as a way to understand the world around them and to have questions and to try to answer those questions with statistics. Those are the three things that I tell um, consumers of statistics, everyday consumers of statistics. So to educators, I would say, are you teaching the three C's? Are you encouraging your students to be calm? Are you educating them in the importance of context as well as all the technical stuff, like all the things around the technical stuff that that make all the difference and above all are you fostering a sense of curiosity in your students i'm sure most educators hope to do that but it's always a good idea to remind ourselves great thank you so much thanks so My much pleasure. for your time great talking to you well great talking to you as well thank thanks so much for for asking me on the podcast thanks for listening to today's podcast if you're interested in learning more about data science education resources, please subscribe to our Substack to get notified when we release any future podcasts. And join our community Slack channel through the link provided in this episode's description. Thank you.